Amen. Well, good morning, Freshwater. How's everybody doing this morning? All right, that was, that was a pretty good uh, response there. All right, well, it is good to see everybody this morning. Um, we are going to be in John 19, 1 through 6. So uh, I'll give you a minute to turn there, or one, not 1 through 6, sorry, 1 through 16. Um, so go ahead, start turning there. Um, for those of you who are just joining us this morning, which it actually looks like we got a pretty regular crowd here. Uh, if you remember last week, it was JT talking about the, the first questioning that Pilate had with Jesus. Um, he dove into like the background of who Pilate was and like the more the kind of man he was in comparison to the the typical sob story that we feel of like, oh, poor Pilate, he was caught between a rock and a hard place. It's like, no, this man was not a good man. He was a selfish man. He was a, a man that looked out for his own good. Um, and he's questioning Jesus, and, and you're seeing just the beginning of the dialogue between uh, Jesus, Pilate, and the Jews in the crowd, right? The Jewish leaders. So that's just to give a little bit of context of, of from where we were and now where we're going. So if you would, just read with me uh, in John 19, 1 through 16. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail the king of the Jews and struck him with their hands. When Pilate went out again, he said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, that, and according to that law, he ought to die because he had, has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he became even more afraid. He entered in his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you have no authority over me at all unless it has been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has a greater sin. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold, your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. If you would just bow with me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you. Um, 
just grateful this morning. Lord, I, I pray that this morning as we engage in your word, as we engage in your truth, um, as you reveal more of your character to us, Lord, that, that you would just give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and, and a heart to listen. Lord, I thank you just for this body of believers. I thank you just for the opportunity today to proclaim your word and your truth. And I pray that this morning you would just work with you within our own hearts um, to not only feel the weightiness of the situation, but also to, to feel and, and see the hope that comes from this. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and, and we trust you in your name. Amen. All right. So, I gave you a little bit of the context of where we've been, that Jesus has already been uh, questioned by Pilate previously. This is his second questioning here. Um, but John, being John, in the first four verses, he goes over a lot of information. He just kind of says, yep, Pilate flogged him. They twisted a crown of thorns, said, hail, hail the king of the Jews. They beat him. Uh, and then uh, after that, he went out to see them again and said, I find no guilt. Okay, all well and good. But that doesn't really allow us to feel the weightiness of everything that happened in that situation. So I'd like us this morning to just slow down. We're going to take this verse by verse and kind of dive into the actual details of it. We're going to actually draw details mostly from the other three Gospels of everything that happened in between there. Just for the sake of, of our ability to be able to understand the weightiness of the situation. Okay? So, verse one. Pilate flogged him. If you could uh, get that slide up, Robert. That's a flagrum. It is a Roman torture device. Okay, this is what Jesus endured. But what we don't understand is that there were actually three types of flogging. So the first type of flogging was someone who, you know, acted unright according to the law, would get, like if it wasn't a capital offense, would still get publicly stripped and beaten, but it was typically with a, a staff or a reed, okay? And they'd, they'd beat them, you know, kind of like in Taiwan, how they do it if you spit gum on the ground, just this is a no-go, don't do it again, okay? That's, that was the first type of, of flogging. They were all f like public forms of punishment, but the first one had no lasting damage. So you'd have a lot of welts, probably a lot of bruises, and you'd heal and move along, okay? The second one was a much more severe. Now, I had trouble finding the instruments that they would use, but it was much more severe. It had lasting damage. They had scars. They opened for blood. Like, it was intentional to cause damage on the person. It was a, this is, this is your last warning type beating, Okay? Third was with the flagrum. Now, these are made nowadays, so it's the closest representation that I could find of, of what historically was actually a flagrum, but they would make these 
you know, leather whips, but they'd actually tie pottery, bone, or even metal beads on that actual strap. And then they'd tip it with a hook. The intention for this was not punishment. This was so atrocious and how things were done that all Roman citizens were exempt from receiving this flagrant punishment. So Paul, when he says, I received 39 lashes five times, he never got this. He maybe got the second one, but he, he never got the flagrum. The flagrum, their goal was to rip open your back to the point where they could see your organs. They tried to see your rib cage. That's how hard they would hit. That was their intention. When we look at this, we, we go, okay, so this was definitely the most severe punishment, but the, I forget the Roman term for it, but the guys doing the whipping, they were the ones who would decide when the man was, or the person being punished was near death. So we see the 39 lashes, right, that Jesus received, but that's from Jewish law. It's found in Deuteronomy 25, verse 3, where it's 40 lashes minus one. So if you're being punished by the Jewish leaders to fall under their law, you'd only get 39 lashes. And they had it at 39 lashes because if you're beating something over 40 times, it means that you have now moved from seeing the person being beat as a human to seeing them as some kind of stupid beast. So for accordance of the law, you can beat someone 39 times and then you need to restrain yourself for the very purpose of still seeing them as human. So that, that was the Jewish law. That's what Jesus received. Roman law, though, it had no limits. Okay? So Jesus received the 39 lashes under, underneath the Jewish law because he was condemned by the Jewish leaders. But when it comes to the, the flagrum torture, uh, it's a terrible word. I think it means something differently now, but flagellation is what they called it. When they would receive that punishment, it was for the very intention of bringing them to the point of death. In fact, most, most people were quickly crucified after because even if they weren't crucified after, they weren't going to live through the whipping. So I, I'm telling you guys this information, yes, it's grotesque, but I'm telling you this information that, so that we can actually understand and feel the weightiness of what Jesus is going through here. It's not just that he got whipped. He was brutally beaten and tortured prior. Okay? His back was open to the bone, most likely which is probably a main reason that he couldn't carry his cross. Like I said, most people died from even just the blood loss or the shock of pain. Okay? So, that's where John just goes, yeah, Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Now, there is speculation that Jesus was actually flogged twice. 
Because when you look at the other accounts in the other three Gospels, Pilate takes Jesus and has him whipped. But then he sends him over to Herod. Okay? We understood last week that Pilate really wanted to have nothing to do with Jesus. Not only was he already on thin ice, he's got the the Jews in an uproar. But then on top of it, he... When he starts inquiring against Jesus, he finds out that Jesus is from Galilee. Not because that's what Jesus answered, but because that's what the, the leaders were proclaiming. And so because of that, he has him flogged, potentially, with the reed and says, look, I punished him. He's good. Like, let's just move along. You guys are just hating this guy for no reason. Even I can see that, and I'm all about myself. So let's just tell him not to do it again and move along. But then the Jews, what do they cry? Crucify him, crucify him. They're getting more amped up. They're getting more angry. Then he finds out, Pilate finds out, oh, he's from Galilee. That is not my jurisdiction. I'm going to send him over to Herod. That's Herod's jurisdiction. So that's what he does. He sends Jesus over to Herod, okay? And that's where in verse 2, you read, And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. That actually happens before Herod. That doesn't happen before Pilate, according to the other three Gospels. Pilate sends Jesus to Herod. Herod is actually super pumped. He gets to finally meet the man to Jesus. And he's really hoping that Jesus does some type of sign or miracle. Jesus responds to him the same way he responded to Pilate, with no answers. So then what do they do? They gather the entire battalion. Does anybody know how much a battalion of soldiers is? It was between 480 and 600 men. These are Roman soldiers, men trained to kill from about the age of 14. Four hundred eighty on the lesser hand of those men gathered around Jesus. They twisted up a crown of thorns and they beat him with sticks and they spit on him and they covered him in a robe and they accidentally but appropriately proclaimed all hail the king of the Jews. Even bowing before him, which is kind of ironic, you know. Every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, and every knee shall bow. Even the men mocking Jesus before his death appropriately coronated him as king. But before Herod, Jesus is there and he's getting beaten and he's getting spit on and he's getting mocked. So after this, Herod goes, well, he's innocent. I don't see anything worth putting him to death over. Now, does anybody see the atrocity of that? He's possibly already been flogged, but he's also been sent and beaten by a gang of men. Mocked, spit on, hit with sticks. I don't know if any of you have ever been hit by a stick. It's not fun. 
But that's what's already happened to Jesus and both of these guys, these leaders of the time, find him innocent and yet still follow through with all of these beatings. Now, it fulfills prophecy. Like, praise the Lord for that. It puts in perspective who Jesus is and what he was willing to do on our behalf. But church, like, that's just atrocious. So after his beating, here he goes, he's innocent, sends him back to Pilate. So this is when Jesus shows up in his purple robe and his crown of thorns, beaten and bloodied. I'm assuming looking rather pathetic. And then we see in John's account, Pilate went out again and said to them, see, I am bringing him out to you that you may may know I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing a a crown of thorns and a purple robe. And Pilate said, behold the man. Behold the man. Other uh, translations of scripture say, behold the son of man. Even Pilate is going, here's the son of God, probably mockingly, but again, correctly defining Jesus for who he is. And, And he's been ordained and he's wearing purple, the color of royalty in that time. So as we continue in, in uh, verses 6 through 12, let's go ahead and read those again. When the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He, enters his, he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, Will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me unless it has been given to you from, the, from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has a greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So if we take into context everything that's happened, he's been questioned multiple times. Okay, and and in his questioning, Pilate and Herod find Jesus innocent. And they're telling the Jews, look, he's innocent. Like, there's nothing worthy of a flagrant beating and crucifixion, as we've inquired this man. Like, this is, this is ridiculous. If we also take the context from other Gospels, we know that Pilate's wife came up and said, have nothing to do with this man. I had a dream about him, and it's been tormenting me all day. 
And then the Jews come out and say, well, he claims to be the son of God. We already know Pilate's on thin ice. He's got a mob forming out front. And he's got his wife and apparently his own gut feeling that he should have nothing to do with Jesus because he's innocent, because he is who he says he is. Pilate is doing absolutely everything possible to remove himself from the responsibility of Jesus. Pilate sees that the people just want to kill Jesus, or at least the the religious leaders just want to kill Jesus because they are jealous of him. So he goes back, goes back into his quarters, and he goes before Jesus, and he's like, hey, listen, who are you? Where are you from? I found you guilt-free of all the accusations that they bring against you, but they're not calming down, so like, who are you? Don't you realize that I have the power to kill you or set you free? trying to flex his muscles a little bit, like, look, you realize I'm the one in authority here, right? Jesus says, stays silent from where are you from? And he says, don't you realize that I have authority over you? And Jesus pipes up and says, nope. The only authority you have over me is the authority that's been given to you. Jesus responds with the true recognition of who's in authority over his life. And he continues to walk obediently. He continues to walk humbly. Let's sit in the weightiness a bit. Why? Why did he do that? Church, he... He stood there obediently. He stood there humbly in his beaten and bloodied state because he loves you. Because he loves us. In Isaiah 54, 14, it says that Jesus was beaten to the point of no longer being recognized as human. He did that for us. He did that to reconcile mankind to fellowship with the Father once again. The plan from the garden, this was the culmination of that point. He did this with purpose and intention. for you so that you could walk free from the power of sin and death so that you could have peace in your heart and hope that's why he came that's why he did this Continue on in, in verse 14. Now, I think this is actually John's main point in this little passage because he, he really just kind of briefly goes over everything that just transpired. Jesus was beaten, he was flogged, moving along, 
brings out the point of the, um, sorry, I heard a baby cry. It's kind of my life right now. But anyways, uh, so he just kind of moves everything. But then in verse 14, he just says, now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. Why did he, because actually in all the other accounts, that's not mentioned. It's assumed, I think, by the reader, but not mentioned. Why, did, why does John mention it? He mentions it because he's making a point that it is time for the Passover lamb to die. The day of preparation is when they would sacrifice the sacrificial lamb so that they could join in commemorating the Passover. John's main point here is saying, but now the lamb has come and is being sacrificed so that all who believe in him can commemorate the Passover. So as we see that, then John continues on. Or actually, sorry, let me back up a little bit because I, I want to mention this with, in, in regards to, to Pilate and engaging with the crowd. Verse 12, it says, From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But Jesus cried out, if you release, or the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Now that's important because what, what, is, what are the Jewish leaders doing at this moment? They're manipulating Pilate. Pilate said multiple times, I find him innocent. They already know he's on thin ice. They're threatening to riot. And so now he says, look, he's innocent. Take him and do it yourself. And they're like, we can't. You have to do it. And he again is like, look, I, I want nothing to do with Jesus. And, they, and then they pull out kind of their, their wild card and they're like, look, if you don't crucify him, you're no friend of Caesar's because this guy's claiming to be a king. How's that going to go for you? So what does Pilate do? Verse 13. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic Gabbatha. Because of the fear of man, Pilate sits down and condemns Jesus to a criminal's death on a cross. Now, this is where the possibility of the second flogging, the actual scourging, comes in. That initially he was just beaten to try to appease the crowd. Now he's been judged and condemned to death because the, the flagrum was not pulled out until someone was condemned to death. Because they knew as soon as they started, he was going to die anyways. So that's where the possibility of a second, second flogging or the actual scourging comes in. That he's now been judged, he's now been condemned to death, and now he's beaten for one final time. Isaiah 53.5 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
upon him was the chastisement or the punishment that brought us to peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. I hope that verse hits a little heavier right now. When you think about the context of what actually happened to him, I had a video, but we couldn't get it pulled up. It was just a computer-generated thing of what someone's back would look like after 40 lashes. It starts out white, and with each slash of nine, nine tails, the, black, the, the back went from white to red. Like, literally, nothing was left untouched. Like, church, this is, this is heavy. And then the Roman soldiers would typically throw salt on just to be funny. That's what he did for us. And we sit here and we're like all that atrocious crowd yelling, crucify him. They can't see who he is. It wraps up this section of verses with the fact that he says, you really want me to crucify your king? And they say, we have no king but Caesar. And with that, he handed Christ over to be crucified. I know that reading this this passage can feel really weighty and honestly not the typical focus of our cultural advent uh, celebrations. But church, feel this weight. This moment in all of its darkness and depravity should feel overwhelming. Can you imagine the, the, the uproar of a trial like this nowadays? If someone declared innocent was still beaten mocked, spit on. Like all of us, I know for myself, being a Mr. Justice, I'd have an issue. At least I say that. Church, in this moment, when we look at it, it stirs in our hearts the, the anger that, that Christ had to suffer like that, or at least for me it does. It's appalling to me to think that a man proclaimed innocent was beaten that severely and then crucified. But church, it's in this moment that when we have our, our perspective appropriately fixed on Christ, that we can see hope. Church, we celebrate Christmas because of baby Jesus, right? Oh, sweet baby Jesus in a manger. Had a star and angels and so sweet. But church, the son of God left his place of glory with the Father 
with the intention and purpose for this. He didn't come unknowingly. It wasn't like, oh shoot, God, like, wait, I'm going to get beaten and crucified? Like, we didn't quite talk about this before I came. He came to do that for you. When we celebrate Christmas, it's yes, Emmanuel, God with us. He, he came to be in that manger. Like, praise God that he came because without him coming, I would still be lost. I would still be hopeless. I would still be dead in my trespasses to sin. And the wrath that he's receiving right now, that was meant for me. That's why he came, church. So yes, as we celebrate the coming of Christ, baby Jesus' birthday, sit with the weightiness of this as well. That he did this to restore mankind to reconciled fellowship with the Father. He came to sacrifice himself as the, the lamb so that you could now have fellowship again with the Father so that you could have a new life and a new heart. That's why he came. We sit here so often and we, we judge this crowd. I can't believe they're yelling, crucify him, spitting on him, jeering at him with insults. I'm going to call you out. You do it too. I do it too. How many times, even as a believer, have you sat there going, I know that this is sin, but I'm still going to do it. How many times have we chose sin over recognizing our king standing there in his robe, in his crown? beaten and bloodied. He bore the weight of the sin of the world. So you think you didn't throw a punch? You think you didn't yell crucify him? Let's reevaluate. Again, I want you to feel the weightiness of that. Because we can't understand how good the good is until we understand how bad the bad is or was. Church, we desperately needed Christ. We desperately, desperately needed him to come, to die, to fulfill the law, to institute a new covenant, to be the one who was the fulfiller of that covenant so that we could no longer be the ones that were responsible. Because if, we're, if we were responsible, we were condemned. In our audacious, arrogant, blind state, Christ stood before us crowned in humble obedience, faithfully for his adulterous bride. He took on the wrath of the Father to reconcile us to fellowship. And he did this because he loves you.
Let's not diminish that, that fact. He did this because he loves us, his bride, his adulterous bride. Church, this is where the hope is found. This is why we celebrate Christmas. This is where we find hope. And as you walk through life and you do make mistakes and you do sin, and you get angry at your wife or like me yesterday, getting angry at the twins because they wouldn't sleep. When you recognize your depravity and your adversary comes alongside you and says, you're not enough. You never have been, you never will be. Remember that Christ died for us. Christ went through this beating, this scourging, this mockery while we were yet enemies. Again, because he loves you. So don't, don't walk in unbelief with that. Don't have the sin of unbelief in your heart and, and believing that you're not enough because Christ came to reconcile you to fellowship with him while you were yet an enemy. In this gospel, we have been discovering who Christ is so that what? we can know and believe. As we've walked through the Gospel of John, we've seen him, the Word of God, suffering servant, Emmanuel, God with us, the Lamb of God, our Savior, our King, our intercessor, our High Priest, our sacrificial Lamb. As we leave here today, I I do want us to feel the weight of this entire situation. I want you to go home and think about how bad it would hurt to be whipped 39 times with something meant to rip the flesh off your back after you've already been beaten by, we're going to say at least 30 guys out of the 480 that were surrounding him. After you've had a crown of thorns smashed down into your scalp, after you've been spit on. Like I want you to go home thinking about that. I want you to go home recognizing that in all of that pain, all of that anguish, all of that turmoil and torture, that Christ did that for you. That he did it to restore you. So I want you to go home feeling the weight of that, but also, church, I don't want you to only be leaving with that. I want you to also leave full of hope. For those of us who have believed in our heart and proclaimed with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, who are we, church? We are his children. We are his sons and daughters, we are his bride, and we are found in who? We are found in the person of Jesus Christ. 
And where is Jesus Christ sitting? He is seated in the heavenlies at the right hand of God the Father. And when the Father looks upon him, he looks at him and says, I am well pleased. So if he's well pleased in the Son and we are in the Son, what does that mean about the Father in relation to those who are in Christ? As his children, guess what, church? It means that he is well pleased with us, even in our failures, even in our shortcomings. Because when Christ took on this punishment, when he took on this death on the cross, he did it in fullness, in completion, which is why he is seated in the heavenlies. Because his work is finished. And with his work being finished for those who are found in him, church, we are declared as his children to be justified, sanctified, and forgiven in fullness. It's not a 70-30% thing. His work's finished. You're justified. You've been made legally right. You're sanctified. You've been made relationally right. You've been set apart. You've been made holy. And you are forgiven. He sees your sins no more. He has cast them as far as the east is from the west. Church, that is your position. That is who you are found to be in Christ. So yes, feel the weightiness of the depravity of our sin, but see the goodness of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done on your behalf. You don't need to walk in shame and guilt because he's already taken the punishment for that. Yes, reconcile. Yes, walk humbly and obediently. But in those moments of sin and failure, don't allow our adversary to come alongside you and say, see, I told you you're not enough. The reality is we can say, I know I wasn't enough. But he still did. And all of this, remember, but Christ. He came in a manger, we celebrate it. But he came in a manger with the purpose of coming and dying on your behalf. to reconcile you to fellowship with the Father. It's dark, but it is hopeful, church, is it not? Romans 8 says that nothing can separate us from God's hand. Nothing can remove us from his love for those who are found in Jesus Christ. Church, we are found in that king. Standing there, correctly coordinated as a son of God, as a king of kings, in his purple robe and his crown of thorns. We are in him. And because we are in him, we can now walk in hope in life. John 17, I think verse 3 says, what is eternal life? Eternal life is to know God and Jesus Christ, his son. That's the purpose, to know God. So, As we sit in all of that, 
we're actually going to go ahead and be taking communion. Um, for, for us, this is something that we get to do to celebrate, to remember what Christ has done for us. It is something specifically for believers to do. So if you are in here, no one's going to be watching or anything, um, but please don't partake of this because this is, this is for the body of Christ to recognize what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf, to recognize the blood that he spilled and the body that he broke to be the sacrifice for us, to be able to walk in hope and life, to be reconciled to the Father. As you take it this morning, Feel the weightiness of what Christ went through on your behalf. But also remember the hope for those of you who believe in Christ that his sacrifice has allowed you to live. Church, we have a good and awesome God. Church, we have a faithful, perfect King. We have a Father that loves us more than we can know or imagine. So whether you pray by yourself or pray with your family or pray with your life group, engage in the remembrance of not only that Christ came, but also that he came to die. Church, I love you. I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then I think TJ is going to come up and play some music, and then just make a line, grab your communion, and just let's remember together this morning, all right? Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you just, Lord, I mean, the only thing I can think of is just thankful, overwhelmed because of who you are, because of what you've done. And Lord, that because of those things, now I can walk in freedom and in truth and in hope. Though sometimes it's hard to believe in faith that I am justified, that I am sanctified, that I am forgiven, Lord, that those are things that you declare about me to be true. Lord, give us the, the heart and the strength to believe that you are who you say you are and that we are who you declare us to be. I pray that through this season, through the day, through the week, Lord, that, that we would hear this truth in our hearts and Lord, that we would walk in a manner that reflects our Savior. Not only because it's life-giving and freeing for us, but Lord, there's a world out here that desperately needs to know you. Lord, Acts 4.13, it says, they saw them as being unlearned and untrained men, but as men who had been recognized, as men who had been with Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray this for our church, that as we engage in Tom Watkins or our workplaces or even our families, that we would reflect you, our perfect and good king. Lord, give us the strength to walk humbly and obediently. 
I thank you for your word. I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the truth that it reveals for us. I thank you for reminding us what you did on our behalf. Lord, we love you. We thank you and we trust you. In your holy, precious, life-giving name. Amen.